Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are continuing our 1983 season with Homesick, My Own Story by Jean Fritz. I have a citation from Publishers Weekly. I'm sorry, did you say Frights? Fritz? Jean's- yeah, I just want to make sure. I, is it Fritz? I thought it was Fritz. Is it Frights? No, I said Fritz. Oh, I'm sorry. You said <laughs> by Jean Fr- Frights. And I was like, oh my God, I've got it wrong. I mean, it's like, okay. I have a citation from Publishers Weekly from 1982, the year of publication. Uh, Fritz's Newbery Honor winning memoir of growing up during a turbulent time in China's history is rich in the telling observations of sight, sounds, and people. Oh, was that it? That's it. <laughs> the The carcass is really, really long and is glowing in a way that I don't feel comfortable repeating. That's fair. As are some of the other things I found. So, Marcy, what did you think about this book? <laughs> well, with that kind of a lead-in, I'm very conflicted about this book, actually. As you said, most of the contemporary reviews were glowing, and... I I can't give an unqualified approval to this book. I did find it enjoyable to read in that it was very well-written and interesting. Like, it wasn't dry at all. And I don't doubt that it's a true-to-life rendition of what was happening at the time. But maybe I should start by by telling anybody who's listening that this is an autobiographical book about Jean Fritz's childhood in China with her missionary parents. And it's fictionalized, but truthful in that it's to her best recollection. But she, of course, using her childhood memories had to sort of, you know, make up the little interstitial events and conversations. But which is similar to the Laura Ingalls Wilder Little House books, but in a similar way, it's it's a product of its times, and the story happens in the 20s and was written and published in the 80s, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of problematic stuff in there. And in addition to the problematic stuff, I think that in the 70s and 80s, Jean Fritz as an author was really well known and sort of the the preeminent like history writer for kids and i think that colored people's perceptions of this book what do you think oh god um <laughs> this this book is i i think conflicted is not quite where i'm at because i think that it should never really be read by anybody in full in modern times hmm. I think there are some useful descriptions of living in that time, that era, mm-hmm. and being an ignorant, like, child. I think there's, I think she does that really well, but I don't think that was the intent. <laughs> I don't think, I think it was either. I think the intent was to be funny or witty or something, and... As much as I enjoyed reading about the Chinese countryside and the flora and fauna and, you know, the growing awareness of there being a political situation, there are so many demerits in in this book, like against this book for me that I can't even, <laughs> I'm almost like paralyzed by the, the, by how upset I am by the book a little bit. Like, cause you have everything from. Yeah, it was written in the 80s and she's using a racial slur really 
really prevalently in it. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But also, like, she's so, as a child character in her child's voice, she's so demeaning. She, I mean, she demeans the Chinese people that are around her so much in her descriptions and the way that she feels so above them and the way that she thinks that she knows better because she's an American, because she just happens to know better, because she's educated, because she knows English, because she's going to be leaving, all these things. It was so unpalatable in in parts. I I agree. It's a little tough to know where to start to dig into this. Okay, so the basic story of this book is Jean Fritz, as a child, was born in China. Her parents were missionaries who worked for the YMCA, and... At the age of 11 or 12, when this book happens, she has just grown up on the stories about how great America is, and that's all she can really think about. And she lives with her family in China, and it seems like most of her friends, if not all of her friends, are other missionaries' children. And she's just looking forward to the time that she gets to go back to the States. And there is an interesting situation in China at that time where they're coming up on what I think is the first of their kind of big civil wars. I'm not particularly well informed about Chinese history and they don't call the war anything specific, but unrest is happening and it's becoming untenable to stay there even if they weren't planning on heading home. And so they have to get out of the country which they do with some problems, but they do. And she gets to go back to her grandmother in America, which is all she's ever really wanted to do. And along the way, she has a best friend who has an adopted brother, and they go back kind of at the same time. And this is her story of of her childhood recollections of that time. There's basically a, a few vacations and the story of her home life. And the, the culmination is just when she gets home and then sort of acclimates to American life. And like I said before, I think it's really, there's some really incredible things in it. Like to read an originally written in English book that's set during the 1920s in China. It's unique. It's unique. It, you know, from a, from a like maybe anthropological perspective. It's it's unique. It's interesting that we get to see it is an outsider's perspective of China, even though she was born there. Um, yeah. because she's not really been raised Chinese. No. I mean she's fluent. She's very comfortable there. But mm-hmm. but you're right. The the thing that's that sticks in my craw the most about this book is a hundred percent the the privilege. Like it reminds me a little bit of the book Roller Skates. Um, it, I don't recall if you actually made it through that one or not because I remember we were talking about it before. I haven't but. gotten to that one yet, and okay. yeah, but I know that you, <laughs> I know that you, you often cite it as as something you don't enjoy. Well, so the, for listeners, it's a 1937 Newbery Medal book by Ruth Sawyer, and in it, there's a girl who basically roller skates around, probably 20s era, New York City, maybe a different time, but, you know, somewhere around then. And the privilege oozing out of every sentence is overwhelming. Like, I really do want to talk about that book because I am going to pick it apart. But 
it, it reminds me of this book because they both have these little girl protagonists and it it bothers me that the author wrote this in the 80s because I feel like you should have gained some perspective by that point on how sort of tone deaf this sounds and how the privilege was just unacceptable. No, it's true. I, you know, I don't remember what the political, like kind of what the, what the political climate was between America and China in the 1980s. So I don't know if this was a case of like, you know, American attitudes were kind of very like, well, China's this other world. So, you know, this is a peek into an American peek into this other world. And so that's why it was not seen as a as a problem. Maybe, but I mean, I and you know, I know that attitudes continue to change and evolve over time. And so some things that are weren't that are super offensive now were not as offensive or at least not recognized as incredibly offensive in the early 80s. But it gets to me because in the book, she at one point when she comes back to the States, a little a boy behind her in school uses a, a word that I'm not about to repeat about the Chinese and also cut, like refers to the Chinese as like Chinamen. And she leaps up to de- to defend, you know, the Chinese and uh, yells at him in the middle of class on her first day of school back, which gets her in some trouble. So the attitude of, of being loyal to the Chinese is there. It's just so unself-aware that her attitudes are not okay. That the juxtap like to be proud of defending a culture when you yourself are constantly holding yourself above it just seems so oblivious that it was really frustrating. It was. And you know, I I often think about this, you know, if if something is a work of like historical like is it like it's histor- it's historical work, right? Historical fiction, or mm-hmm. like in this case it's a memoir. I often think about that, right? Because if you're using the terminology that was used during that time, that's authentic, but it's also hurtful to current people. So they're not being any kind of note or understanding about you should not use the word coolie or coolies. Yeah, which is, I mean, the word that I mentioned a second ago is, and I'm truly not going to repeat, and that's not coolies, but coolies is the word that's used prevalently throughout the book, which is not acceptable now. But I don't know what the attitude toward that was in the 70s and, and early 80s. Well, I mean, I I don't know exactly either. I do know my um, my very scholarly research into Urban Dictionary um, <laughs> told me that told me that the cone hats, the straw cone hats, were called coolies for a long time, and that is a term that's been used in the United States for a long time, and it has never denoted anything really good. Because it was either othering the the Chinese workers who worked on the railroad, or just people who had immigrated, um, or or who were refugees from various Asian countries, it was used as a derogatory term. I just feel like it's blatantly obvious that that Jean Fritz was allowed to just write this memoir about being a bratty white kid, white American kid in China, describe what she wanted to describe, 
described the people who took care of her her whole life in demeaning terms. And then it was celebrated. And I just, there's no differentiation between her childhood perspective and what the the word usage she was allowed to use or thought was okay to use and the 1980s when this was actually published. You know, like, why did no one stop her? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when I was a kid in Florida, there was a specific seashell that was called a coolie hat. And I didn't know what that word meant or like that it meant anything because, you know, they call them all kinds of crazy things. Seashells were called like turkey wing and, you know, and so I didn't I didn't know what that meant until much later. And I'm sure that I would I would call them that, you know, as a kid running around. like, Oh, I found this. That's just what I would call it. I still don't know the actual name for that seashell, but I would, of course, not call it that now. But I think maybe since she was so acclimated to that. It makes sense that she would put it in there, but you're right that it is not right that somebody didn't like somebody in the editing department could could have been like, by the way, this is not cool. I mean, if someone if someone knows something about the the creation of this book, the editing, the vetting, I mean, please let us know because there's nothing online that I could find. There's like no information about this book. There's no information past like the reviews from nineteen eighty two. And that Which it's, all it's always glowing. listed. Yeah, it's all listed as like, you know, they're glowing, but the, also it's just like these are the reviews. And then every time it's mentioned, it's just like, oh, it won a Newberry and there's nothing. So I think, you know, I think it's very likely. And I mean, if I'm speaking out of turn, if someone knows something different, please let me know. It is very, very likely that the editorial team, that the whole publishing company, Jean herself, they're all white people and they don't, they weren't thinking about these things. Yeah. They just weren't, you know? I mean that. And they thought it was totally okay to just write a book about another culture, maybe justified it by saying, oh, this is Jean's memoir. This is her memory. And then just, just let it be, you know? And it's, it's very interesting to see how times have changed because not only did this book you know, get a Newbery honor, but, you know, she won the Laura Ingalls Award for a Lifetime Achievement. You know, she won this, this book, won the National Book Award, Boston Globe Horn Book Honor Book, like all of those awards. And a few years later, she got the Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it's, I mean, that's not an unconsidered choice, you know, <laughs> like it's a very specific choice. It is, yeah, it is not her, it is not an unconsidered choice. You're exactly right. These are major awards. These are major recognition. And it's super weird to me in that case, because I don't think, I think somehow I missed that it won the National Book Award. It's super weird to me in that case that like, there's nothing about this and there's no criticism and there's like no cultural analysis of it. Well, I think, if you it's think so about it, weird. Yeah. I, well, I think, okay, so she had a big reputation at that point. She wrote like 45 or more books on historical figures for children. And her writing style is very readable, right? So like they're good books for kids. And I think she had this big reputation and this book is unique. Like how often do you read a book that is not super dry and awful about an expat kid or about a kid in China at all, you know, in the 20s. Like, these are just, like, interesting 
topics. So I think if you kind of put those ingredients together, it might explain some of the accolades. But I don't understand how it's avoided a more modern look back at it where people are like, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah. we're we're leading the charge. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here because, I mean, like Marcy and I have both said, there's some really interesting descriptions. That's one thing I can't fault her for, okay? Yeah. She had some beautiful descriptions of the Chinese of, of Chinese landscape and China and like what was surrounding her when she wasn't denigrating it. And, you know, she, I feel like she really hits that pitch perfect kid voice of being whiny and, you know, being whiny and entitled. And, you know, there's, there's some skill to that. You know, there's, a, there's an ability to ability to pull that off is pretty impressive, even though I didn't, like that character. I didn't like the portrayal. I, I just do, I do think that for it to be so consistently kind of repugnant, I think it's shows some skill. Well, and she doesn't try to portray herself as perfect either. Like there's a lot in there about how she felt like her mom was always telling her to be good. And like she said to her grandmother, like, ah, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm just not good at being good. Sometimes I don't even try. And she has an enjoyable attitude about that sometimes. Like, it's got a little snark to it, so she's not saying she was, like, this perfect put-upon kid. So I, I get the appeal of that, too. It's just there were so many other things that didn't land well. Okay, so she, so she, she's friends with another, like, American family and their kids. Yeah, Andrea and David. Well, David's adopted, though. Isn't he Chinese? They never specify whether he's Chinese or not, but I, I believe he must have been. Because they have an orphan that comes to stay with them over Christmas with this other family. And Jean is just beside herself that she can't have her own Chinese orphan over Christmas, which is, oh God, it's so Veruca Salt in like a not funny, charming way. <laughs> And then her mom's like, oh, you know what? We'll borrow the orphan on Christmas Day. She'll stay with us for a few days. And everybody's oh, like, yeah, you can borrow her. And so this orphaned child is being like goggled at by these white kids. Possibly one of them is, is Chinese, but adopted by a white family. And she just like, she takes off. Yeah. <laughs> she like, she like plays the adults against each other. So the adults think that she's upstairs with the other kids they were playing hide and seek. Oh, yeah. She has grabbed her suitcase and she is just like motored out of that house. And I'm like, you go. <laughs> Get away from these people. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't need this. Like, you don't need this this whole situation. So I'm I'm proud of you. Yeah. And then there's this whole thing with like, there's a nanny who lives in her house and I guess is taking care of her forever. Lenene. And I may be saying that wrong and I apologize. And she treats her, this grown woman, she treats her as like an equal. This woman ostensibly is taking care of you for most of your life. And like, so that is not a pretty, that's not pretty, that doesn't involve pretty tasks. So like, I understand a child not being aware of that and being understanding of like this woman probably cleaned up your vomit and poo. And so like be nice to her. But she like, she treats her slash characterizes her almost as like a, like a doll, like a, like this like breakable precious object that she possesses and can talk to and talk about whenever she wants. And she's there all the time and she's utterly reliable and it's got these like overtones of the whole like mammy situation 
in the southern U.S., intended or not, and it's a little difficult to stomach. Even, I mean, they have this very lovely relationship between them, but that was the problem, too. It's just you can't treat someone as if they're your family, but also as if they're completely at your disposal at all times. Yeah. But I will say, <laughs> I will say that everyone in the book, everyone, because Jean has just decided that she doesn't like her name. She's like, I want my name to be Marjorie. Why isn't my name Marjorie? Everyone she says that to, including Lenene, is like, Marjorie is not is is not worth a shit name. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so curious because no offense to anybody named Marjorie. I think it's a fine I think it's a fine name, but like Jean is so obsessed with this name and keeps bringing it up and trying to get validation. And that is that is one of the points where I feel like there's no delineation between who is she thinks is better than her and and not. They're all just like Marjorie is a fucking horrible name. I know. Keep it keep it in your brain. Don't let it come out your mouth. <laughs> so I'm so curious because you know generations have their own associations. Like if you said to somebody now like a Chad and a Karen went walking by, you know exactly what I'm saying. Somebody a hundred years from now is going to be like, what's wrong with those names? I don't get it. Chad's so, such I, a beautiful name. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't understand what the association in the 20s was with the name Marjorie. Like, I, I guess it's a clearly American name, but like, why is it like trashy or whatever everybody's implying? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need to do some, uh, some searching in on Marjorie's. If you're listening and you know the answer, we are very curious. Please email us. Also, I, I'm not convinced by the stuff I've read online. Please, someone explain to me why Peg is a nickname for Margaret. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. If you have this knowledge, please share it with us, please. I feel like the same people are behind this as are behind the spelling of words like baloney and kernel. Like, at some point, somebody's like, that's a great idea. And it just, like, stuck. I don't know. I bet it was Jean Fritz. Let's just blame everything <laughs> on her. I'm well, going to blame everything on her that I don't like right now. You're going to laugh at me, but I have like a specific list of grievances against this book. <laughs> well, I I do too. So let's let's go get into your um, airing of grievances. Airing of the this is the festivus of homesick. Okay, so one thing that made me wild was at one point she is describing like she's out in her yard or something, and she was describing what it's like to be in a Chinese, kind of in a Chinese village. She's in an American home in this little like enclave, but China is around her and she has a pretty good view and she can see like the hills and the the huts and the way she's describing things is awful. I'm not saying it's untruthful. I'm just saying that her method of describing it and her like attitude is not ideal, but she's talking about things like the sounds and she's like, the normal sounds of the of the evening. There's a woman wailing for money to bury her baby, which might not be the specific words, but it's she's so nonchalant about that. And then later, her mother has a baby, a little girl. So she has a sister for like a week, but then the baby dies. And it's this very traumatizing event to her. It's isolating. She's so struck by her own grief and her mother's grief and her father's. And the, the disparity between the callous way that she treats this local woman like wailing for money to bury her baby and the way her family treats a loss is just so horrible. You know, she's so ab above 
the local culture in her mind that they're not even the same event. It's just a like a normal sound in the evening. You know what I mean? Yeah. And along with those descriptions, she talks about the there's a small boy that she gives, you know, gives like a pittance to. And then like at some point he starts yelling at her that she's a white devil. And I don't she's so like taken aback and scandalized by this. <laughs> I just want to be like I just want to be like what like what do you expect? Like you are obviously treating him like he's beneath you and if you are giving him some kind of assistance you're doing it begrudgingly slash kind of self-satisfiedly. So why would he? I don't know. Like she, she treats him gonna, like an animal. She treats him like a yeah, dog. Of course, of course, he's gonna he's gonna like call you names because you're horrible, Marjorie. Well, <laughs> well, she's feeding him like bits of orange, and and treating him like a stray dog that she's trying to kind of make friends with. Yeah, because she's doing it with like little strips of oranges. She's not just like giving him an orange like a like an actual like human being should give someone something. Yeah, she is just being a jackass. She does in other places like talk about people yelling and calling them foreign devils. And she takes that totally fine. Like she just seems normal. Like she's out on the wall that surrounds their little village with her best friend. She's standing on the wall and there's a villager like having a fight with another neighbor and they see the, the kids and start screaming white, you know, foreign devil at them. And they're, they're just like, oh, guess we better go down. Let's go inside. Like it's just totally normal to them. Like there's no thought as to why that's happening. They're like, that's yeah. how these people are. They're not like, oh, what's causing this? Well, and there's no, and that's what galls me too. And again, and again, this goes back to like, okay, something set in a in a land in a, in a time from before, a time long ago, right? But if this is an actual, if this this is actual, this is supposed to be factual actual factual oh my god <laughs> then why aren't you giving some kind of context why aren't you like saying okay this is what happened but from my being in the 1980s now i can say okay we were we were going into this country that we had no ties to and we were trying to dictate what you know, land and wealth and resources and how, like how they might be used. And I was a child of one of those people. So of course, I'm not going to be seen as a friendly entity. Like, you know, I mean, there's no, there's a complete lack of awareness at, you know, young Jean and elderly Jean. And I, I don't think that that's okay. Well, I agree. I, I think that people take their examples from their parents, at least when they're young. And like her dad, it was totally exhilarated by what he called close squeaks. Like he loved these close calls, whether it's safety or whatever, like in life, he likes close calls where you come out okay at the end. And he's like just exhilarated. He is in it for the adrenaline of it, basically, with no sense of of vulnerability. Like it, that's just a huge example of of a privilege problem right there, even though he's like being a missionary in a foreign country, like he's there to help people and he believes that he's helping people, but the attitude is still there. Like they describe a situation where somebody was outside the YMCA, like screaming about foreign devils, I believe was the actual phrase there, but he's basically in, in modern terms, protesting. I'm sure it was a, a more 
aggressive form of that. And instead of like a respectful way of engaging with that, like the dad snuck around out behind him and was making fun of him behind him to make the audience laugh. And then, you know, came out on top that way. And everybody's like, oh, that, you know, dumb, you know, local guy, like he really got his comeuppance or whatever, but there was no like engagement in a, in a real way. There was no explaining what people were even angry about. Well, it's not worth her time. I mean, I think that's what we get from it. Right. And you can say, I mean, you could make the argument like, well, she was like a tween and her world was small and that, you know, she was just dealing with her own family and stuff. But again, I think there's not a pass to be given here because this was written, this was written 60 years after the fact. Yeah. I, that's, that's the sticking point for me. Like if you write this story as it happens or they publish your journals, right? That's, that's one thing, right? But if you go back and prune and revise and write and you've had, you know, 50 years to reflect on it and you have no self-awareness, that's not okay. And those 50 years include like major civil rights movements, major human rights movements, and a lot of political changes that really should have had some effect on the narrative here. Especially when you're a history writer. <laughs> I mean, come on. And and true, like, and also, even if you take away the fact that a, a kid would not be politically astute, right? If you take away that element... The attitude happens in a microcosm as well. Like if you if you say, okay, a kid's going to be only involved with their family and friends and not like the greater picture, the attitude is still there. So we talked about her best friend, Andrea. She has an adopted older brother. So this family that they're friends with who are also missionaries in China, they thought that they couldn't have kids and they adopted a boy. And then they got pregnant and had, I think, another two kids. I, I could be wrong about the number. But this older boy is totally obsessed with knowing who his real parents are. And everybody thinks this is ridiculous and absurd. And even when the orphan comes on loan for Christmas, the the boy... David is like, oh my God, she came from the same orphanage as me. Like when she goes back, she could try to find out in the records who my parents are. And everybody's like, okay, as if it's absurd. And at one point when they're on the boat, all of them coming to the U.S., Jean Fritz like yells at him and is like, I don't know why you can't get over this. Grow up, blah, blah, blah. And there is no context for that either. Like there's no reflection saying, you know, and I should not have said that, like that was really insensitive. Like obviously he wanted to know who his parents were. None of that. She was clearly a little proud of of finally snapping and telling him to to grow up. And well, that I mean, is terrible. And I can understand like, uh, I guess if you don't want to like, you don't want to break the narrative, you don't want to break the fourth wall or something, but you, I mean, you're writing this, it's obvious that you're much older. So that's already, wall's already been broken. And you could have just said, you know, if only I could have said this to my 12 year old self. I mean, just something, something. Or, or why include it at all? Like, <laughs> yeah, the only yeah. reason to give that incident and not any follow up is that she was proud of herself for doing it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and th- and she just left it at that. She yelled at him to not be like a baby about wanting to know who his parents were, know who his parents were, and then that was it. That was just all there was to it. Yeah. So there's just lots of things like that. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I think in in some regards, I can see, I can see why this has been untouched because one, I think that it seems kind of innocuous. If you're just reading descriptions and honestly, there are other books that are listed as Newbery honors in surrounding years and even this year that are like way more interesting seeming. Yeah. So I can see how maybe it kind of has just floated along. But I also am really confused by the lack of like critical analysis by like kid lit scholars and stuff. So you know, I said, I was joking. I said, we're leading the charge, but I also think this needs to be examined. This needs to be looked at. There's a lot of stuff here. And I can't help but think that there's got to be other things in her other writings that probably need to be examined. Not not like witch hunting, but just, you know, let's examine these things and see, especially if these are books that are still being recommended to kids for today. Yeah. It was a little shocking to look online and see no no real criticism of this book. I think there was one review that I read that said it didn't really rise above pedestrian at any point, but that was the literally the only negative sentence I read about this. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting, too, is that it's not... So content aside, it is not a badly written book. It's not spectacularly well written because I think that sometimes when people are writing memoirs, they include things that are not necessary for the narrative of the book because it's in their memory, so that it has importance to them, so they put it in. It's not as if you were crafting a fiction story and every part of the story has a bearing on, you know, the whole. So it's lacking a little bit in that way. But it's an interesting read in what it's talking about the time period and the setting and the characterization is interesting. It's just the content that is lacking. And I just, I feel like when it got published, the content was not as unacceptable and it just, it kind of floated through, floating through is exactly the right term that you used. Like it it got its accolades and then people kind of forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Which is tough <laughs> because yeah. this. You're right. I'm, I'm. You're right that I'm also interested to read some of her, her other books. But I think because this is based on her memories, she thinks that because she remembers it that way and she's being truthful, like she's. It's not a hundred percent factual, but it's it's truthful. You know what I mean? And she has no ill will. You know, there's no no ill intent here. It's just an ignorance of what's okay to say, that it's okay to write it. But I would really be interested to read some of her other books and see. My theory is that because she was probably a very good researcher, she probably researched those books and wrote them according to the research that she found. And that would not include things like racial slurs. Yeah. And she mostly was writing about people like Paul Revere, right? So I think growing up when she did... We just don't know. I don't know. I haven't read her other stuff. She could just be saying racial slurs in all of her books. <laughs> we I will, have no we idea. We need to go do some research here. I have no idea. <laughs> mm. 
This, again, is one of our episodes where we are recording separately because of COVID. We do not know when we will be able to do our snacks and drinks episodes, but that is still something we're planning on doing. And I have no idea what to drink for this. I mean, is there a cocktail called I Hate Jean? Oh, God. No, um, not I hate Jean. I don't hate her. I just, this book I do not like at all. And it's, it, no one, no one modern should read it. No child should read it. Well, you know, it was about missionaries, so maybe we shouldn't have a drink. Maybe we should eat Chinese food. I feel like that's almost like a gene-like thing to do. Americanized Chinese food. Yeah, Americanized Chinese food. Crab Rangoon. Yeah. I mean, we got to just take it whatever there is out there and just make it just make it whatever we want. You know what we should do? We should get <laughs> we should find out what a truly authentic Chinese drink or meal is and have that in our own rebellion. Okay. I mean, I'm sure we can find some Chinese cocktails, particularly one. I'd like to find one that involves some kind of bluebell or has bluebell in the name. Just because yeah, I like yeah, it. Yeah, they talk about bluebells as a, as a wild flower. I did like that part. That was very, that was lovely. <laughs> that description was lovely of the flowers that she was picking with her mom. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, it's, it's hard too, because like if a book is just badly written, then you're like, fine, screw it. You know, this book is trash. It's not the case. You know, it's just, there's the problematic parts add up to too much. Yeah, they do. So for that reason, I know we usually say whether or not we would recommend a book should be obvious. In this case, you know, a lot of times, there are books that we love that are truly, truly problematic that we still say, okay, you should read this book, but you need to discuss with your child what the problematic parts are and like talk about them. I think there are just too many issues in this book for me to be able to recommend it to anybody. I mean, if you really, really want to include an excerpt from this, then include the part about the bluebells because that's really the only part that's not problem a problem in some way. Yeah. And isn't upsetting in some way. So. Yeah. I I mean, if you're an adult and you're interested, like, go ahead and read this, but I would not give it to a kid. No, no, not not at all. Not at all. Especially because, like, using coolie as a word throughout might be historically accurate, might be explainable as an issue, but the, the part where the American boy behind her uses racial slurs uses words that are really unacceptable, and I would not really want kids who mm-hmm. are unfamiliar with those words to learn them. Oh, and China man and China men is not okay either. So. No, totally agree. No, all of these, all of these things in here, <laughs> there's just like a minefield of just like bad terminology and upsetting terminology. So, if you want to hate read something, it, it might be a good idea to do that. <laughs> but let's go on to the stuff that we recommend as read betters because I have I have some suggestions. What about you, Marcy? I do too. Do you want to go first? Sure. So I hope this isn't a cop-out. I don't think it's a (laughs) cop-out, but I would like to recommend several authors that you check out. Unfortunately, I could not find another children's book in English set in the 1920s that also has an American girl like in it or even a children's story set in the 1920s in China at all in English, which is, you know unfortunately my only language. But so I decided that I was going to give a little list of Chinese American authors that I really love. Yeah. But the, but first of all, I want to, I want to recommend to everyone, if you don't know about Lee and Low Books, they've just, they've just hit 30 years as a publishing company. And not only do they publish books that are 
have a wide array of diverse topics about diverse people. They're all they're mostly, I think, created by by diverse authors and by own voices. And I don't know if there's a hashtag own pictures, but maybe there should be. So Lee and Lowe is incredible. And not only do they have they sell books, but they also have under the educators tab, they have book lists by theme and they have a Chinese cultural collection. Nice. As well as many, many other cultural collections and just topics. So even if you're not looking for a, a Chinese culture book, you also have like teens and YA, monthly holidays, that kind of thing. So you may be looking for a Father's Day book, but if you're if you're looking on this, you know, if you're looking on this website, you're going to find diverse Father's Day books, which I think is a really great resource for everybody that's buying and or checking books out from the library for for kids. Um, so I can't recommend them enough. They're just incredible. And then as far as the Chinese American authors that I enjoy, there's Grace Lin, there's Jean Luen Yang, there's Jen Wang. Oh, and Ed Young. Yeah, that's a good list. And Lawrence and Lawrence Yep. All of those are incredible, incredible writers, artists. You know, some of them are artists as well. And I just can't say enough good things about them. So instead of reading this this really troubling book. I would recommend checking something out from Lee and Lowe and or from one of these creators. Yeah, we'll put a link to Lee and Lowe in the show notes, but I'm also going to put a link on our resources page on our webpage. So if you need to find that, it should be easily accessible. I have some read betters also. I also had just sort of the general works of Grace Lynn on there, but I thought maybe if you wanted a, a different perspective on the sort of growing up Chinese American one way or another. Her middle grade books are awesome because she has kind of like an inverse thing where she grew up in America with Chinese culture and wanting to be American. But then as she got older, became much more interested in her Asian heritage. And her books are so, you get the childhood memories, but they're so well done and open-minded I guess is the word that I'm looking for. Like everything that Grace Lynn does is so inclusive, right? Like she's not saying being American is bad or or like when I was a kid, you know, I hated being Asian or whatever. She just didn't really embrace it as a kid and she grew to appreciate it. And that experience is so, – that evolution is something I would have loved to see in Jean Fritz. And then I also just had some other little snippets in this story that reminded me of other things. So if you like the part in this story where they're having trouble getting out of the country and it's very dangerous because of war and prejudice against Americans, then you might enjoy some books about the Jewish experience during World War II. So Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry is is one like that, and that has a better done version of that chapter of this book. And then oh, I had another one and I can't remember at all what it was. But my my main read better than this is actually imaginary because I was thinking about how well done Number of the Stars is. And I was also remembering how Lois Lowry was telling us that when she was a child, she lived in an enclave like this. Um, we interviewed her, if you're interested to hear the long story, which is phenomenal in her words. You should go check out that interview on our website. But 
um, she also was a child in a foreign country like this. So she she also lived in sort of American enclave in Japan, not China, because her dad was in the military. And she would ride out on her bike, unbeknownst to her parents, and sort of observe the countryside. And I just thought, in addition to the awesome conclusion to that story, which still blows my mind, I just thought that if she had done a book like this book about her experiences, it would be, like, I can't only imagine how awesome it would be because her attitudes toward everything are so also self-aware, you know, her her mm-hmm. thoughtfulness is is prevalent in everything that she writes. And I can only imagine what a job she would do of a book like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be, one can hope that she'll do that one day. <laughs> I know. So that's my imaginary read better. <laughs> I wish she would write it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for our episode on Homesick by Jean Fritz. We are continuing our 1983 season. Our next episode will be The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley, which is one of Marcy's all-time favorite books. I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. (laughs) And I've never read. So this is going to be a really interesting episode. Marcy, what if I don't like it? I'm going to die. I'll curl up in a ball and and blow away in a ball of dust. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully that won't happen. Please find us on our social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know what you think of different books. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and review us on whatever platforms you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps us keep going. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.